Blog Talk Radio. The wolf is at the door. 
the wolf is at the door. Father, I thank you, God. I thank you, Lord, for your word. It's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. I thank you, Lord, for the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit that gives us new hearts, Lord, so that we can stretch out beyond our limitations and be ambassadors of you and your word to all who can still hear. I thank you, Lord, for the anointing of your spirit. I thank you for courage and compassion today, God, to speak things that need to be spoken in this generation. Help us, Lord, as a church, never to back away from truth. Help us to go forward and let it fall where it may. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. The wolf is at the door. Isaiah chapter 53. Prophet Isaiah says these words. Who has believed our report? Beginning at verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, it's, it's so important before we even begin to look at this passage of Scripture to understand that it was a religious system that crucified Christ. You know, we understand that the Roman authorities were the instruments of his death, but it was the religious order of the day created by God's own people that put the Son of God on a cross. There were leaders in that generation, and they had, they had used their position over the people to garner titles for themselves. They had adorned themselves in righteous robes, as they saw it, and they, they loved to parade among the people, as Jesus said, and be called master, teacher, teacher, teacher in the marketplace. But Jesus himself came in a form that he did not take on this form of grandeur that men give to themselves. And also, too, they created a system of salvation that was much wider and much more inclusive than the one that God had given to us. Matter of fact, it was so narrow that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. They were so offended when he challenged their religious system because they had, they had created this wide door into eternal life and eternal bliss with God that doesn't exist. All kinds of people were coming into the temple defiled and going out defiled. They were living in manners and ways that the Bible clearly indicated would leave them excluded from the kingdom of God forever. And so in comes this man. He's not interested in their system. He's not trying to garner one of their titles. He's not doing things their way. The Bible says there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. He's not dressed in righteous robes. He's, he's not got boxes on his forehead. He's not walking around with tassels on his arms. He's not parading like some 
rooster before the people, talking about how close to God he actually is. They despised him and rejected him because he challenged their religious system. They had created a system of redemption that did not exist. Do you understand? And that's the propensity of humankind. The original sin in the Garden of Eden is that we can be as God is. Remember, we can, we can become judges of what's good and what's evil. And if you take that to its logical extension, we can start declaring things that are, that are God forgives when he doesn't. We can start declaring behaviors righteous when they're not. We can start telling people they're going to heaven when they aren't. That is the grave, grave danger of religion. When humankind in its sin nature is allowed to take it and so twist it and so pervert it that it becomes something that God never intended it to be. Can you imagine sitting in a place as a professed or supposed believer in Christ only to end up at the throne of God one day to find out you've been outside the whole thing all along? What a tragedy that's going to be for so many. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. There was a, a heaviness in the heart of the Son of God as he looked on the people as sheep without a shepherd. But we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And we are, of course, reliving the scripture again in great measure in our day. In many, many places, even where God's people are gathering, the word of God is despised. And we are now gravitating to fancy preachers who have opened the door real wide to people who are not going to heaven, giving them false peace when they're not at peace with God. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things are what passed away, and behold, all things are become new. If, if we are in Christ, if Christ is in us, that means a new value system. It means a new heart. It means a new mind. It means a new way of speaking, thinking, living. It means that what God says is good is good. And what God says is evil is evil. We don't try to change that. We accept that from the word of God. Now this message is given to shepherds to bring us not only to the knowledge of our salvation, but to the freedom which Christ bought for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his beating, as it is, that he took on the cross, we are healed. The old things don't have power over us anymore unless we choose to let them. The old ways of living, speaking, thinking, doing are broken. And we become new creations in Christ. We are able to look back and say, thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm not everything that I hoped to be. But thank God I'm not what I used to be, and thank God I'm going to be one day what Christ is calling me to be. So there's this constant moving forward in the life of a genuine believer, leaving an old way of thinking, an old way of living, an old way of speaking, and moving to truth, even when it's painful. The book of Proverbs says, a righteous person swears to their own hurt and doesn't change. In other words, I say I'm going to do this, and I do it because God's word says I should, even if it causes me pain. And I don't turn from it. Now, Paul was this kind of a shepherd. He, he didn't hold back, as I said earlier. This is what he said in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 31. 
He said, therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. In other words, and this is the cry of my heart. If anyone here today, hearing my voice, ends up in hell, let it not be my fault. Let it never be because I didn't declare to you the whole counsel of God, or I didn't warn you of something that had the power to drag you down into eternal darkness. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says, for this I know, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, he said, day and night with tears. Paul said there's going to be wolves that are going to come and they're all already, there's packs of them now. It's not just a few, there's many now in our generation. And they're going to come to devour the sacrifice of Christ and the promise of new life through him. They're going to promise you liberty as the scripture says in the New Testament, but they themselves are the slaves to corruption. They're promising something they, they're not experiencing themselves and they can't deliver it. Listen to what Jude says, the last book of the New Testament before the book of the Revelation. Verse 3 says, Behold, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities round about them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Here's what the wolves do. They teach that you can live a lifestyle against the word of God and still claim heaven as your eternal home. That is the wolf that's now at the door of the Christian church in America. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Be, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that means people who engage in sexual intercourse outside of the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Fornicators are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Settle it, it's in the word of God. Don't be deceived into thinking you can live in a moral lifestyle and heaven will still be your home. So hard for this generation to hear. When you've got preachers standing in pulpits saying, well, God understands your need and God is a God of love and God won't send anybody to hell. No, that's not true. God is a God of love. We know that. 
But the Bible tells us that fornicators have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Nor idolaters, people who have other loves in there. Something that is in your life that, that is, is, is your whole obsession. Churches or Christ is just a little part of your life, but there's something else in your life that you're pursuing. Nor adulterers, people who engage, who are married, but engage. And, you know, today we take words like adultery and we call it an extramarital affair, as if it's a black tie event. You know, you are invited to an extramarital affair next Friday at 5 o'clock. Bible calls it adultery. Adultery. Settle it. Deal with it. The sex outside of marriage will keep you outside of the kingdom of God. And sex outside of the bonds of the person that you are married to, the, wife, the man or woman you're married to, will also keep you outside of the kingdom of God, unless it's repented of. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. In other words, that's both, men and women. Folks, listen. I understand the dilemma, in a sense, uh, that some might face in same-sex attraction. But I'm telling you, you can't give in to that lifestyle on any level. Because the Bible clearly says it will leave you outside the kingdom of God. Jesus himself said, some people are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. In other words, some people just live their lives without any sexual activity for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And he said, whoever can hear this, let them hear it. You know, you can, you go to a funeral, for example, and you can dress it up with flowers all around and you can, there's a death certificate and the preacher can get up and say nice words. But the reality is that the corpse is still dead. You can't make it live. It doesn't matter what you do. And it's the same with homosexual marriage, folks. I've got to say it straight out today. I'm not going to hold back on it. You can adorn it with flowers. You can get a certificate from City Hall. You, you can find some backslidden preacher to say nice words about it. But the wages of sin is still death. You can't change that. Now listen. I'll be called a hater for, for this message today. I understand that. But I'm not a hater. If I hated you, I'd let you go to hell. If I hated you, I'd let you die in your sin. If I walk down the street and your house is on fire and you're up in your bedroom window and I don't warn you, am I really a good neighbor? Do I really love you? Do I really care about your eternal destiny? You can curse me out of your bedroom window all you want, but I will still warn you that your house is on fire for your soul's sake. Nor thieves. Lest we should think that we're just going to focus on one thing. Nor thieves. That means people who steal. It's that simple. People who steal. People who steal a little. They have a contract maybe and steal a little bit more than they should. Income tax time is coming around, folks. Are you going to pay your taxes? <laughs> nor covetous. Nor drunkards. People who come to church this morning, but you were out at a club last night. You're drinking and dancing and, and this foolishness. I'm out there to share the testimony of Christ. Who are you kidding? 
If you really are there to do that, stand on the sidewalk with pamphlets in your hand and give it to the drunks coming out of the club. You don't need to be in there with them. No revilers. You know, especially in, in this environment we're now living in, in this country at this time, where reviling has is is, is become the speech of the day, where it's, it's fashionable just to curse everybody around you. You know, Paul said revilers don't inherit the kingdom of God. We have a different heart. We have a different spirit. We're, we're a different kind of people. Jesus himself said, blessed are the peacemakers. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. I love that. Would be to God that I can honestly say that of everybody here today. Such were some of you. But you are sanctified. That means you are set apart for the kingdom of God. You are, you, 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 you honestly repented. You walked away. You moved away from what God's word says is wrong. You can't make it right. You can't change it. It doesn't matter if a million people say, oh, isn't this wonderful? If God's word says it's not, it's not. You are sanctified. You walked away. You walked away from these old ways of thinking, these old behaviors and all of these things. And you set yourself apart for the kingdom of God. You're justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now you and I are living in an hour where the wolf is heading to the door of the church. Demanding in our generation that we bow down to this new definitions of good and evil. This is where we're living. The days of being able to say without penalty what I'm saying today are are over if they're not if they're not over they're very close to over it's an amazing time that we're now living in jesus said in john chapter 10 i am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep but a hireling who is not the shepherd one who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them the hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. This is the point. There's a lot of hirelings in a lot of pulpits in America today. And they're, they're, they don't necessarily leave the people, but they leave biblical truth. They flee the truth when the wolf is at the door. When the wolf says, if you don't bow down, this is our golden statue. This is what this generation is going to look like. This is what you'll preach. These are the truths that you will espouse. They will bow down when the music plays to save themselves because it's always been about themselves, not about the people. The hireling will flee. And you, will, you are seeing and you will see a huge departure from biblical truth in the Christian church in this last hour we're living in. The Bible declares that there's going to be an apostasy, a great falling away in the last days from biblical truth. And the hirelings will lead the people, not into the narrow way of eternal life, but into that broad way of destruction. And they flee because it's always done about them. It's been about the robes. It's been about the praises of man. It's been about the titles. It's been about the numbers. It's been about the apparent evidences of success. Then when Christ comes and challenges them, they hate him. His own system hated him. His own people hated him. They pushed him away because he declared their definitions of salvation and truth to be bankrupt. He told them they were full of dead men's bones. He said, you go cross land and sea to get one convert and you make him twice the child of hell that you've become. 
These are the words of Christ. He warned us in the last days there would be a great falling away. He warned us. He said, you're going to be hated of all nations for my name's sake. You can't escape that. That's a promise in the word of God. We're going to be hated. It's starting now. You're seeing it in society. You're seeing it in the workplace. You can't even have an opinion on things anymore in this generation that we're now living in. Let me say it clearly now. Abortion. For the cause of birth control, or, or so the people, I understand there are extenuating circumstances, so please don't misquote me on this. But for the cause of just birth control, or for the cause of having sexual pleasure and not having to deal with the life that it can create, is sin in the sight of a holy God. It's a terrible sin in the sight of a holy God. In America today, the deliberate gender confusing of our children in grade school is sin in the sight of a holy God. In our high schools, forbidding our children to pray and creating this fictitious division between the state and the church, which doesn't exist. If you really study it, you'll understand it never existed. It was created by the godless. Forbidding our children to pray in our schools is sin in the sight of a holy God. In our colleges, allowing godless professors to rise up and mock God and radicalize a whole generation against even their own nation that was founded by God for the purpose of being able to worship according to the word of God and freely by conscience is sin in the sight of a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise be to God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. So let this society despise him. Let them consider him ordinary. Let them rebel against his words. But this day, as Joshua once said, if it be hard to follow the Lord, that's your choice. Choose this day. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. By the grace of God, we will not bow before the wolf in this generation. By the grace of God, we will stand for the truth of God. By the grace of God, we will pray again. We will pray again as a church age. By the grace of God, we will stand up unashamed for the truth of Jesus Christ. We stand on the side of victory. We stand on the side. We stand on the side of eternal life in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Glory, 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 glory. Glory, glory, glory. And as uh, David the king once did, we will stand in this generation against the lion and the bear and everything that comes in to devour our children and to devour the people of God. 
It's time for the church of Jesus Christ to rise up. It's time for the people of God to fight back. It's time for us to begin to pray. It's time to run for public office. It's time for teachers to speak. It's time. It's time for the people of God. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Glory, 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 glory. The true shepherds of God in this generation are going to care more for the people than for their own safety. More than our own reputation. It's not going to be an easy road. But I don't know about you, but I'm not giving up this generation to darkness. I'm going to stand because the word of God stands forever. The opinions of men are like grains of sand on the seashore. They'll fall into nowhere. But the word of God abides forever. Now here's where I conclude. If you're living in sin, I plead with you, while there's still time, turn. Turn from it. And trust God for the strength. I know there's some sitting here or listening online or they're in the annex and they say, you don't know how deep the bondage is. You don't know how powerful the draw is no I don't but I know the spirit of God is more powerful than all of that put together and I know the promise of God is that we will have a new life an eternal life the days of living in Christian ease is over in America folks it's over We're about to join our brothers and sisters in China and other places who are being persecuted for what they believe. In Iran, who are being jailed and put to death for believing in Christ. We've lived a very comfortable, very lazy Christianity in America, but those days are over. The wolf is now at the door. Pray for those of us who lead in any capacity that God would give us courage. As I pray for you, that God would give you a cleanness of life and practice and heart and give you the courage to speak up in whatever environment you find yourself in. Our children are starving for truth in this generation, and they're wide open. There's only a few Goliaths that claim that they have the power to keep us from being the people of God, but they don't. So I challenge you with all my heart, turn from sin, find that new life in Christ. And rise up and be the person that God's called you to be. We're going to sing for just a few moments. We're going to worship. I guess my other call is just twofold today. It's for people to say, oh God, help me please to turn from this thing in my life. I don't have to tell you what it is. You already know. Help me to turn away from watching pornography help me to turn away from drink help me God to turn away from that flirtation in the office help me God help me God to stop railing get me off get me out of the seat of the scornful and help me to walk with the righteous deliver me God from cowardice 
and put a love for people in my heart that casts out all fear. Give me a voice to call this generation back to you again. And God help me not to cower under the fear of the repercussions that will come all of our way. You know, I was in Washington and there's an ex-general there who really <clears throat> gives courage to my heart every time I meet him and talk with him. And essentially, what he would say if he were standing here is, you have to fight for a cause higher than your own preservation. If it's just about preserving yourself, you'll flee when the enemy comes. If it's about others, you'll stand. May God give us the courage in this generation to stand for those that don't have a voice for themselves, for our children, for the unborn, for our high school students, for our college students, for every mother, every father, every child in this country that needs to know there's a Savior who died for them. Give us the grace to be kind and compassionate to all, not judging anyone, we leave that to God, but reaching as far as we can reach into this mass of fallen humanity with this message of incredible grace that belongs to every person who turns to it through Jesus Christ. So Father, I thank you, Lord God, that you will today cause your kingdom to advance. You will give us the strength and courage that we now need as a people to stand against the onslaught of wickedness that wants to extinguish the testimony of your life and word. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for courage for your people as others throughout the world have had to have. God, deliver us, Lord, from this life of ease that so many of your people have known and bring us into the true fight for the souls of men. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. God, we yield our bodies today to this purpose. We thank you in Jesus' name. So we're going to stand in a moment. For those who just, you just know you have to turn from something. And for those who want to turn towards Christ, maybe you don't have a struggle that I'm talking about in your life, but you say, God, I'm stuck in neutral. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going back and I'm not going forward. But today you say, I want to make a difference. I want my life to count. I want my voice to have authority. If that's you, we're going to stand. I'm going to ask you to make your way here. We're going to pray together and believe God to answer our prayer. In the annex, you can make your way here. We'll wait for you in the campus churches. Step between the screens, if you will. We'll be back in just a moment.
We need to stand up for the truth and the right. We need to tell the story of Jesus everywhere we go. It's wonderful to be born again. Wonderful to have our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. Listen to the words of this song, and may it encourage you, the light from heaven. I'm glad the sun, the S-O-N, is always shining. Amen. Praise his name. a great mender. We can't lean to our understanding about things that happen in life sometimes. But we've got a God that understands and takes care of his children. And surely he is our great comforter. Who is your trust in tonight? 
I hope it's the Lord Jesus. If it's not God that you're trusting in, then you're not trusting in the right one. That's right. Yes. Because the Lord Jesus is the way, and He's the truth, and He's the light. And I hope that your faith and your trust is in Him. Amen. If it is not, the Bible says if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins yes. and cleanse Amen. us from all unrighteousness. Amen. And He'll be your comfort. He'll be your guide. He'll be your strength. And He'll be your high tower. Yes, amen. I promise you, He will never fail you. He'll never leave you, never forsake you. But He'll be a friend that will sit closer than a brother. Praise the name of the Lord. Listen to a great song that will encourage your heart and lift you up. It's called My Comfort. But in God's holy word, there 
could ever have in life. And when he speaks peace to us, it makes a difference when Jesus passes by praise his name. Oftentimes I've wondered, even in my darkest hour, what is faithful to my needs and my desires And I hear His voice so tender Speaking softly in my ear I kneel down and pray in my secret place And I know He will hear He is always near When He speaks peace The raging storm must die There's no need to be this hard 
www.jesusinthemorningradio.com By that time, you know, after pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day, I was addicted to porn, I was addicted to masturbation, but at the time I didn't think it was it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry, and so I wanted more of it. I was on one of my hikes through the desert, and I was praying, and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son, and whom I am well pleased. And when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You certainly are not saying that to me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you going to let me love you or not? By God's grace, I said, Lord, I've got to come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is a, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. He said, oh, yeah, I know. I'll show you. And the Lord said, you and I are going to go down into this cave. Don't worry, it's dark, it's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there, but I'm gonna be with you. My parents were uh, an interesting mix. My dad basically grew up in a Christian home. He had a good solid uh, foundation. My mom, not so much. Uh, When they had me, they were young. My dad was 18, my mom was 16. They were legally married, uh, but you know, they were teenagers and uh, my mom had gone through lots and lots of trauma growing up in her family. I think she really was very kind of standoffish regarding God. My my dad had always, uh, I think, had a love for the Lord, but he had a lot of issues that he struggled with, addiction issues. And so my dad would take my little brother and I to church. My mom never joined us. Uh, and he would read Bible stories to us uh, uh, at night. So I had something of a foundation there. And, you know, I remember going to church and uh, Sunday school and things like that. But then my parents uh, split up when I was about seven. And part of what caused that was uh, my my mother had me and then my brother Ken and then my sister Tammy. 
But after three months, Tammy died suddenly in her crib uh, of what they used to call uh, crib death. It's now called sudden infant death syndrome. And I remember vividly waking up one morning and hearing my mother just shrieking. And I saw a fireman walking past my open bedroom door down the hall carrying my baby sister. And my mother trailing behind him just weeping. I didn't know what was going on, but of course I knew something something was, was happening. And she actually found her dad in her crib that day. And the reason that was significant is because my parents' marriage had always been kind of rocky, but that trauma just kind of finished him off. And it wasn't long before my mother took my little brother and I to Texas to live with uh, her parents. And my parents divorced after that. That was a, a, a tough time in the experience of our family. At that point, then... Uh, my my mom, who didn't really have any real skills, she she got work as a cocktail waitress, uh, and I was introduced to kind of the honky tonk lifestyle in Texas. And she worked so very very hard just to make ends meet, but it was really hard. And when she actually met a man who was willing to kind of you know take her under his wing and and pay her bills, and she she jumped at the chance. I think not only because uh, you know we struggled financially, but my mom was just a very very broken person, like I said. And, and she was desperate for for acceptance and connection with somebody, but she didn't know how to maintain those connections. And she literally went from one cowboy to the next. Uh, and they all seemed to to have this tendency to to be abusive. I watched my mother get beaten on a regular basis by different men. My little brother and I learned how to hide in cupboards and things like that to to steer clear. So it was it was a challenge, but. As, as hard as all of that was, probably the greatest uh, source of pain was just my relationship with my mom herself. My mom would become uh, very emotional, very uh, almost explosive at the smallest thing. You know, she was the kind of uh, mother who, if you spilled your milk, she would just almost like have this meltdown, like, you know, what, what are you doing? And, and so I grew up feeling lots and lots of anxiety. I remember a story, it just might seem kind of silly to some people, but I remember before my parents split up, I was in the bathroom one day, and I've always had a very vivid imagination, which has been both a, a blessing and a curse. <laughs> but I was hanging from the towel rack in the bathroom, so I'm about, you know, maybe even five or six years old, and I'm playing out some adventure, you know, I'm, I'm the hero hanging from the cliff edge, and, and you know, the bad guy's going to step on my fingers or whatever, and all of a sudden the towel rack came off of the wall in my hands, <laughs> and I landed on the floor, and made a big ruckus, and I felt this terror come into my chest, just just this, this, this abject dread, because I knew my mom was going to come around the corner, and she was going to yell at me or, you know, tell me that I was stupid or I was clumsy. And uh, I, I can still, strange as it sounds, even at this age, I can still remember just her, her, her bulging eyes and the veins on the side of her neck and, and her uh, asking me, what, what are you doing? And I can joke about it now, but for years I thought my name was frickin' Brat. Mm. Uh, it was actually Russell, but, but my mom just, and I understand now, of course, for years I didn't understand that she came from just the most incredible brokenness. She was, she was molested by her grandfather. She had a, a, just tons of pain, and her, her family was just a huge mess. She didn't have the wherewithal to be, you know, uh, the kind of mother that she wanted to be, that, that my brother and I needed. She was just so easily triggered 
she would always talk about having a nervous breakdown. So I lived in constant fear that my mother was just going to, to lose it and that I would probably be to blame. I have another memory of a couple years after that. I, was, I don't know why I always had my adventures in the bathroom, but <laughs> I was in the bathroom. I had this little Mickey Mouse nightlight, and I filled up the this, this is just exactly the kind of thing a little boy would do, isn't it? I filled up the, the bathroom sink, and I was playing submarine with my Mickey Mouse nightlight. And Mickey was, you know, making a dive and then surfacing and making a dive and surfacing. And then I thought it would be fun to plug Mickey in. Now, Mickey was full of water now. And when I plugged it in, I heard this pop and blue sparks. And like, oh, uh, I could have been electrocuted. But I wasn't afraid of being electrocuted. I was terrified that when my mother came around the corner, I was going to be verbally abused and cut to ribbons and... That was really almost like the, the norm in my life, basically what we would call a day verbal emotional abuse, being shamed, being constantly told I was a bad boy, I was making her life impossible. And so even as a little boy, I just kind of assumed that, that I must really be a horrible person if I can make this grown woman, you know, completely lose control. I mean, how bad of a son must I be? And looking back now, I realized my mother, she wasn't trying to be abusive or cruel. She was just parenting me out of her own brokenness. You know, there's a saying, you, you can't give what you don't have. And she had never had any real care or comfort or mentoring growing up. And so she was winging it. But that really began to shape how I saw myself. Uh, and my mother was especially nervous about anything having to do with sex. I remember around that same time that Mickey and I, you know, had our adventure. Uh, I walked into the bathroom one day, not realizing that my mom was taking a bath. And when I spotted her from like the, the, the waist up, she, 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 again, she screamed this, this terrible scream. I think it was probably her own trauma. And I, at first I just froze. I thought I'd really done something bad, but then I, of course I, I hightailed it out of there. But I felt like I'd seen something horrible, you know, unbelievable, and that somehow I was to blame for that. Of course, it was just a little boy mistakenly walking in on his mom taking a bath. And had my mom been a little more healthy, she might have said, you know, she might have covered up and said, uh, sweetie, mom's taking a bath. You step outside, wait till I'm done. But she couldn't do that because her, her own level of shame and, and self-hate was so great that she saw everything as a horrible emergency, a crisis. And so that was ingrained in me and in my little brother. When my parents split up and we moved to Texas, Probably the, the, the next memory I have that was, that was formative for me was I was walking home from school. I was probably in the first or second grade. So I would have, I would have been maybe about uh, seven or eight. And I was walking through this field on the way home and I saw this, this thing in a, next to a bush. It was kind of trash strewn around. And I saw it and I, I went over and looked at it and it was a magazine. And it was some kind of a pornographic magazine. And I looked at this and I saw these pictures of, of naked women and they all seem so happy and joyous and, and welcoming and you know, they're showing me every crevice of their body and I felt like two things happened at the same time. I felt like this, this adrenaline rush that hit me like I'm not supposed to be seeing this. But at the same time I almost felt like this comfort and this warmth. And looking back now I realized that what occurred in that moment was in my own life I felt like I didn't get any real fathering because he wasn't there and certainly no mothering, uh, no nurturing, no, no comfort, no, no affection. So here, here, was, here were grown women being kind and welcoming to me and, and revealing themselves to me. And so obviously it had all the sexual components, but there was an emotional component that, that took place. It felt like nurture to my starving little soul.
and I think in some ways that experience, it marked me. For the first time, I felt like, well, now I get to be with a woman, see a woman, have a woman share herself, be honest, be exposed, literally and figuratively. And, and this was where I'm going to find my comfort. And that basically sent me on a journey for probably the next six, eight years of looking for pornography wherever I could find it. And this, of course, was before the Internet, so you couldn't go online. Uh, but as I got a little older, 10, 12, 13, I'd go to uh, like used bookstores or, or, or places that sold magazines or books. And if there were like any sex manuals or something, I'd, uh, I'd open it up and I'd be, I'd be standing there with, with people walking all around me, just hypnotized by what I was looking at. I mean, a couple of times the store owner would say, uh, yeah, young man, if, if you're going to look at that, you need to go somewhere else to look at that because, you know, I don't want you doing that in front of the whole world. I just, I, I, I constantly looked for something sexual. If there was like somebody in my elementary school class who seemed to like me, I mean, I was, I was experimenting sexually as much as I could with any other girl who would have me. My whole life became about finding my sense of worth and belonging and, and significance through uh, the, the sexual love of a female. I didn't realize all the mother issues that were part of this or, or just, you know, the fact that some legitimate nurturing needs that God intended me and every little boy to, to have fulfilled were, were not only being starved, but they were even being uh, attacked in the other direction. I was being, I was being shamed. I was, I was being insulted. I was being told I was a horrible little person, and I believed it. So I was desperate for any little crumbs I could find, and somehow I connected in my mind, not surprisingly, that acceptance, those crumbs of of love and and affection and care with sex. And so that set me on a journey, and I I just continued to kind of devolve from there. At 16, I was just, you know, a typical kid in high school, and my, I remember when I was with my best friend, Dan, our, our goal was to finally get a job and earn enough money to hire a prostitute. And if we could be with a, a grown woman like that, then it would just meet all of the deep needs of our soul. That's how deceived I was and how, how, how broken and bound I was that I, that I saw that. Hmm. Let me back up a little bit. The good thing was, at 12, I encountered Christ for the first time. When we lived in Texas, uh, me and two of my good friends, Marty and Kyle were their names, we hung out together. We were invited to this church where they were showing a movie, uh, some of the people watching us might remember this movie. It was called A Thief in the Night. It was one of those really bad Christian movies from the 70s that the production values were awful. <laughs> it was all about, you know, the Antichrist coming and the rapture and don't be left behind. I think they showed the mark of the beast. It looked like, literally it looked like a UPC code, but it scared the heck out of me. And after the movie, the pastor got up and basically said, you know, if, if you don't want to be left behind after the rapture, if you, if you know there's sin in your life and you want Jesus to forgive you, well, come forward right now and let me pray with you. And almost as if on cue, my, my, my two friends and I, we stood up simultaneously and we shuffled to the, fo- to the front and we got down on our knees and the, the pastor laid his hands on us and just prayed that, you know, we'd be forgiven, that we would accept Christ into our hearts. They were bawling like little babies. Uh, I wasn't crying because I'd learned not to feel. I'd learned in my family growing up that if I felt anything except cooperation or happiness about what my mother wanted to do, I would be punished. I couldn't be angry, only she could be angry. Uh, I couldn't be depressed. That made her see that her life and, and, and the way she treated me was, was hurting me and wounding me, and that, that just made her feel really, really bad. But she took that out of me. And so 
my basically I learned how to how to not feel from an early early age. I I froze that. I I was very stoic, uh, and some have accused me of still being that way. Uh, I have this George Washington face. Uh, I can have emo deep emotions, but it doesn't always my my face doesn't always get the memo. So. <laughs> Even though I didn't feel any you know, overt emotion that night when we were praying at this little Assemblies of God church in West Texas, something hit me. I felt this cleansing. I felt like for the first time in my little life, I didn't want to be this, this, this little kind of foul-mouthed punk that I'd already become by 12. I wanted to be good. I wanted to be a kind person. I wanted to be somebody who uh, had, a, had a, a positive impact in the world. I'd never felt that in my life. But I'm convinced that that was the night I was born again. But then I went home back to my alcoholic family, to, to, to my mother and the man she was with who regularly abused her. And just nobody followed up. Nobody you know, called me or invited me to, to, to come to Sunday school or you know, any kind of a youth group. So I definitely had an encounter with Jesus. But nobody helped me understand what to do after that. So... My spirit was open, but I had no guidance, so I actually started going more and more into like occultic things. I was fascinated with witchcraft and, and anything satanic, and, and I would read books, even as a little guy, adult books about how to cast spells. And I mean, I was totally into that. I, I was fascinated by kind of the, the world of darkness. That's basically what was going on for the next few years, and I eventually ended up kind of moving more into a, a type of New Age belief system, uh, trying to connect with my spirit guide, had no idea I was, I was getting on the fringes of a demonic, had no idea. Again, I just, I was believing all kinds of stuff I was reading, kind of metaphysical and like Buddhist Hindu kind of, of thought. It was that summer in 1978 that I had an opportunity to travel with somebody. Uh, it was really just strange. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of things in my life are very weird and unorthodox, but there was a, a woman, I lived uh, in a little town called Yucca Valley, California, which is not too far from Palm Springs. And I saw an ad in the paper one day that said, a uh, woman traveling to East Coast looking for a traveling companion will pay all expenses. I thought, well, that sounds like an adventure. And how old were you at this time? I was 16. My dad, uh, he was an avid pot smoker, and he, you know, delved in drugs and drinking, uh, had for many, many years. But he still had that spiritual hunger, and we would, we would talk about things. Cause by this time, I'd actually left my mom's place when I was about 16 or so, and moved in with my dad because just the, the trauma and the, the negativity that surrounded me was so awful, I just had to escape. And so my dad, even though he was a drug addict and an ex-con and he had lots and lots of problems, he was a breath of fresh air to me considering where I'd been before. And we talked about God. And uh, when, this, uh, when we saw this ad in the paper, this woman, she was actually uh, stationed at the Marine Corps base and she was going back to Boston, where she'd come from. And she'd actually put money in a couple of banks across the, the country, and she just wanted to travel back, take her time. She wanted somebody to go with her. So I, I think I was the only person who answered her ad. I, we, we met somewhere, my parents and I, and I, I lied and told her I was 18. She was a little concerned about, you know, uh, but she said, well, I haven't had anybody else respond. So we set out, and we started driving from the, the high desert of California, and probably about three, four months later, we ended up... Uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. But it was during that time that, that God really got a hold of me. I was still I was still reading all of this, you know, weird kind of metaphysical literature and I was into just I mean, you name it. I if I was into UFOs, I was into to to spirit beings and interdimensional experience. I mean, 
I was just, I was just a sponge. I wanted all of it. But when we got to Columbus, Ohio, uh, we had to kind of just take a little break for a while. Uh, she decided to do a little temp work, and, and I was able to get a job, too, just for uh, like a couple of weeks so we could earn a little bit of money. And we stayed at this boarding house, and the, the woman who ran the boarding house was a, an on-fire Christian. Now, she was, a, she was an interesting piece of work. <laughs> she, she smoked like a chimney, and she had kind of a salty attitude, but she knew Jesus. God had used her to do incredible miracles, and I sat down one night and started talking with her, and I started telling her my, theolo- my theories about, you know, spiritual things. And instead of telling me, well, that, that all sounds like a bunch of silly stuff you know, that you've made up in your head, she said, no, what you're telling me, Russell, those, those are real experiences. You know, when you heard the voice, when you've seen these things and you've experienced these other things, that's real. That's, that's absolutely real. But she said, do you realize that you're on the wrong side of the spiritual world? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, God is not the only one who can do supernatural things and reveal things to people and, and, and do miracles and signs and wonders. The devil can too. And, and the demonic world is real, and they counterfeit a lot of this stuff. And it actually made sense to me. It's like, well, okay, she didn't tell me I was silly or crazy. She acknowledged that I had real experiences, but maybe I was playing with fire. Maybe I was on the wrong team. And it, it concerned me. It frightened me. And so I started peppering her with questions about Christianity, and she had some decent answers. And the next day I, I got up. And I decided that I was going to seek this God. I had been kind of doing it. I had actually been reading a Bible up to that time because no matter what literature or, or guru or, you know, uh, teacher I read, they always quoted from the Bible, even talked about Jesus. So I knew he figured in there somewhere. But at that point, uh, I fasted for the first time in my life, uh, and I spent the day without food, and I found a private place to pray, and I just said, Lord, if what this woman is telling me is true, I'm kind of on the wrong side of the fence here. I want to know the truth. I do. I want to know what's, what's real, what's true. And if, if I'm believing things that are false or, or dangerous, then please rescue me from those things. And the only verse I really knew that made sense was John 14:6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I didn't know anything else. I didn't really understand the cross or any of that stuff. But I knew that, and I realized I've been running circles around Jesus. I've been listening to people who, could, who said they could show me the way or they could teach me the way. But Jesus is saying, I am the way. And on the strength of that, I just said, Lord, you know, if this is true, I want to follow you. I want to belong to you. I want to be your person. And that's when my, my, my life with Jesus really began to take off. We traveled the rest of the way across the country. I came back home. I eventually found a, a little church and started to get plugged in. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I had actually met somebody who cared for me. That might sound weird to somebody who's listening to my story that, well, so you're saying some invisible person made you feel loved? That's absolutely what I'm saying. Because I realized that even though God is invisible, that he's real. I started reading the Bible with fresh new eyes. I started being around other Christians who had a relationship with the Lord, and that started answering questions. I started connecting with people. I started praying and seeking God. And I felt like I was in a real relationship with someone who cared for me and who loved me and who got me and that I wasn't just an annoyance or an irritant to. So I literally clung to Jesus for dear life. Hmm. I did it not because I was so spiritual. I did it because I was so desperately lonely and despairing and hopeless. No human relationships had ever really touched the need, but I felt like Jesus was starting to touch that. What little I knew of him. How did he begin to deal with with everything that was going on around you? 
um, you obviously had hurt from a from a younger age. The witchcraft, right? You were involved at some point. Right. right. You had these desires to want to even get involved with prostitutes and mm-hmm. all of these different things. Um, coming in contact with Jesus and clinging to Him, what was His response? What did He begin to do in your life as you begin to have this relationship with Him? Well, the first thing Jesus did was He showed me that you know all of these little spiritual adventures and odysseys that I was pursuing were definitely uh, in the world of darkness. That there there are spiritual beings who are holy and who are good, and then there are spiritual beings who are unholy and unclean and and de- deceptive. And I realized I'd been I've been hanging around, you know, with the wrong crowd. <clears throat> so I gave up all that. I, I mean, I repented. I wanted nothing to do with anything. I mean, even, even horoscopes is like, I don't want anything to do with any of it. And the next thing he just started dealing with was my lust problem. By that time, you know, after basically pursuing pornography, acting out with any, you know, young girl that would give me the time of day. Uh, so from, you know, like 7, 8, 10 years old, all the way up to 16, I'd already gotten in a lot of trouble. I was addicted to porn. I was addicted to masturbation. I was a voyeur. I would look through people's windows to see what I could see. I believe this proverb says, evil comes to him who seeks for it. Well, I found a lot of evil. I found things I was looking for and saw things that I shouldn't have seen. But at the time, I didn't think it was, it was evil. I thought it was the answer to my heart's cry. And so I wanted more of it. The first thing Jesus said is, you've got to stop lusting after every woman you see and thinking sexual thoughts 24-7. And so, as best I could, I just said, Lord, I want, to, I want to obey you. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to start what I didn't know at the time, like it says in Corinthians, taking every thought captive. So I just, I, I learned how to just catch myself and say, no, I don't need to go down that road. And it was just a constant battle. I was so, my mind was so pickled by the lust and the, the pornography and the constant search for some kind of sexual uh, salvation that it really took a while for me to, to get out of that mindset. And the masturbation didn't go away instantly. That was still a, a habit. Gradually, the Lord helped me to, to let go of that. So at that point, you know, my mind was cleared up more, and I was able to really focus on Jesus. And I, I just I saturated myself in Scripture and in prayer. In the little church I was a part of, I even had kind of a reputation of being something of a fanatic. <laughs> uh, because... When I had free time, when I wasn't working, you know, I'd, I'd pack a, a snack and some water and, and my Bible, and I'd literally take a hike into the desert and just find some place where I could be alone with the Lord on top of a little foothill. Or, and those were wonderful times. And the Lord began to speak to me even then. In fact, I remember the first time I heard his voice. And let me just say, when I say his voice, I don't mean an audible voice. I think sometimes people are confused, like, oh, you, you hear is his voice husky? Is it deep? <laughs> I've heard it said that God's voice is sub-vocal. It, it's, it's not necessarily a vocalization. Though God can speak audibly. I've talked to people who've told me they've had that experience. I believe them. But it was more uh, what the Bible calls that, that still small voice, that, that gentle whisper. But the first time I remember kind of confronting that, I was on one of my hikes through the desert, and I was praying, and this thought came into my mind, you are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the, when I thought that, I instantly recoiled. So wait a minute, wait a minute. That's, Father, that's what you said about your perfect son when he was baptized in the Jordan River. You, certainly you're not saying that to me. That, that's, that can't be, I must really be, man, I'm, my ego must be running away from me. And I just sensed the second thought that came into my heart was, are you going to let me love you or not? 
I thought, wow, are you saying that to me? God, are you telling me that I'm your beloved son? And that began years of, of wrestling with, did I believe what he said about me or did I believe the message I was raised all my life uh, under that, that I was a bad, worthless, unlovable person? But slowly, because I was immersing myself in Christ, my ability to hear got better. My ability to discern got better. And I was just experiencing a kind of reparenting. Jesus became the father I hadn't had. He actually became the mother I never had. He was so gentle and comforting and patient and nurturing. And so this was, this was just like, you know, my everyday diet. I didn't realize at the time that, you know, as a t- teenage Christian, that my experience was a little bit unusual because sometimes when I talked to some of the other people at my church, they'd kind of look at me funny. And it wasn't because I was in a conservative church. I was, I was in a church that believed in the gifts of the Spirit and the power of God, but, but I was, I think, a little too much even for them because uh, the, the need and the desperation of me was so great that it was to that degree that I sought the Lord and, and wanted to get to know Him and, and learn about Him and, and let Him own more and more of my life, probably about 10 years without even watching television. And that's not because my church taught that or that was, you know, some, in fact, everybody was free to do that, but I just figured, I don't want to spend all my time watching TV like I did before I was a Christian. I want to get to know Jesus. And that was actually a very healthy thing for me. So I got 10 years to detox from media and movies and, you know, all all that stuff. And I I realized Jesus was taking me kind of down a unique path. I started getting involved in some ministry stuff. I, I, I led our youth group at our church and I actually started having opportunities to preach in some places. And mm. my pastor asked me to teach a Bible study with some people. And by now I'm like 20 years old because the word was just in me so deeply. When I was about 20, 21, I met the woman who became my wife. And that, of course, was, was uh, a turning point for me because I'd always believed, basically from the time I was 16, I said, I need a wife. That's, my, that's what I need. Right? That's, if I have a woman, then I'll be fine. So... I wasn't seeking porn, but I was still kind of believing that the love of a woman would, would take away all the, the pain and loss inside of my heart. Mm. I've come to understand now that that really wasn't the case, but uh, I believed that. And so when I got married at 21, and my wife was 21, I mean, we, we clung to each other, and that was a good thing. I mean, I was having sex for the first time. In spite of all the weird stuff that I'd been involved in prior, I, I hadn't actually had sex or anything really close to it with a girl. Uh, not because I wasn't looking for the opportunities, but I know now that God was protecting me from that. People that I've worked with now in counseling who've done that whole thing, the, it, it leaves permanent scars. And Jesus kept me from that, which I'm really grateful for now. So literally the first woman I had intercourse with was my wife on our wedding night. Wow. And I still remember that with a lot of fondness. Uh, just, it was like, it was shocking and wonderful and strange and weird and beautiful all at the same time. A lot of people can't say that. And I don't say that as a point of pride, I say it almost as a, as a point of amazement that somehow God was able to preserve me through all of my deviance and, and all of my searching uh, to, to be able to, to meet my wife and to be a real virgin the night that I met her, uh, the night that we, uh, we consummated our marriage, I should say. Mm. Those were good years. I continued growing in the Lord, but after a while, it's like even the love of my wife was not enough, and I'd feel this, this emptiness rise up inside of me. 
And I was convinced at the time that it was because that she wasn't taking care of my needs or she wasn't as responsive as I needed her to be here. Or she was maybe a little bit reserved sexually. And so I would tell her, you know, I need more from you. And she, she'd try to measure up. But what I didn't realize was that maternal deficit that I carried inside was still there. And it was fueling a lot of, of what I was trying to get from her. I was trying to get the mothering from my, from my new wife that I never got from my mom. I was trying to get the nurture and the comfort. I started getting that from Jesus, but being married opened me up to a, to a whole new level, uh, and that was a good thing. But, you know, the, those, those ancient wounds from inside really came to the surface. There was a major turning point after we'd been married about seven years. Well, I didn't live in the high desert anymore. We had moved to where we live now here in Fresno. This was 1987. The Lord had given me a clear vision that I was supposed to come here and be involved in ministry here in Fresno. I didn't know what that looked like. He told me it would be pastoral. He told me he had a work for me to do here, but that's about all I knew. On the strength of that, we we picked up and we moved 300 miles to uh, a a town that I wasn't unfamiliar with. It actually lived in Fresno until my sophomore year in high school. And then I went to live with my dad, so I was kind of coming back home, if you will. But I wasn't real thrilled about it because I basically kind of grown in my relationship with Christ and in kind of re, being rebuilt as a person in the, in the desert. I loved the desert. Some people hate it, but for me, it was a refuge. It was a real place of, of, of comfort and healing. So coming to the big city, so to speak, I only did it because I felt the Lord made it real clear that I was supposed to. So I did, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and I was involved in pastoring a little church, and then I was an associate pastor somewhere for a while. But by that time, my wife and I had been married about seven years. I had a little two-year-old son, and I was still having this, this, this hunger, this ache that just, it would go away for a while, but it would always rise back to the surface. And finally, I realized that we, my wife and I needed counseling because this wasn't being addressed. And so I didn't even believe in counseling. I mean, I was so, uh, how can I phrase it? Not only was I on fire for the Lord, but I was also kind of like a, a fundamentalist in some ways. I, I believed, you know, it's clear right and wrong, and you don't go to a counselor because, you know, they're going to give you Freudian nonsense, and that's worldly, and you just go to the Bible. But I was so desperate, and I was like, well, I'll even try that. Hmm. So we met a Christian counselor, and uh, she, was, she was just a, a beautiful woman. She was very discerning. I think she had me pegged right from the start. But what happened in counseling, or it actually it was therapy is what it was, well, she knew how to ask the questions that nobody had ever asked that I hadn't even asked myself. And when she said, well, tell me about, you know, your, your childhood and your upbringing. And, and I'm telling her all the stuff I'm, I'm sharing right now. She's just like, Russell, you know that isn't normal, right? You know that to be yelled at and to be screamed at and for your mother to curse you with profanities all the time, that's not normal. Well, it was normal to me. Growing up in a, in a, in a trailer park in West Texas, that was my life and being around people who drank Pabst Blue Ribbon beer and, and wore cowboy boots and listened to country and western music. That was, that was normal, but it was all very uh, abusive and scary and chaotic and traumatic. And this gifted Christian counselor was able to help me see that what I experienced was not just a normal childhood with a few, you know, hard breaks. It was actually abuse, hmm. a, a pattern of abuse, and it had caused me to start to see myself in a certain way. And then I, I started to go down a whole new road, uh, a journey into the reality of what I'd, I'd lived through in the first 16, 20 years of my life. And God began to show me that I'd experienced genuine abuse. It had marked me. It had caused me to believe things about myself that weren't true. And it had catapulted me into trying to find comfort and love through sex. 
uh, and even as I was a Christian, and I was in ministry by this time, uh, I was still, I wasn't looking to porn. The masturbation was behind me. I wasn't flirting with people. I was, I was completely faithful to my wife, but I was looking to her to meet all of the profound emptiness inside of me. And it was, it was in counseling that this started to really come to light. One day, Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, you always say that it's, it's me that you trust in. It's me that you rely on. It's me that you cling to. But have you noticed that when you're really lonely or afraid or, or stressed or hurting, you run to Carrie, not me? I just thought, whoa, that's true. And I realized in that moment that I was an idol worshiper. Just because I was lawfully married, just because we were both Christians, didn't mean that the dynamic between the two of us was healthy. I was looking to my wife to meet needs that I carried over from a very loveless family. And those, those, uh, those unmet needs were legitimate, even God-given. But, you know, the little boy in me can't be mothered by looking to his wife to play that role. I didn't realize that I'd been doing that, but I realized at that point and that I'd actually made my wife a God of sorts. It was at that point that Jesus gave me what has become my life verse, which was John 7:37, where Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And I realized I'd be going everywhere but. Not that I hadn't been coming to Christ, but not to the level I needed to. That there was a level of desperation and loneliness and, and even despair that I'd, I'd kind of buried inside of me and tried to even cover up with ministry in some ways. And Jesus said, you, you're going to have to get to know me at a whole new level. And he, he actually gave me a picture one day of, of standing like in this like wheat field, like you'd, you'd find in Kansas or something. I was a little bit confused. It's like, well, but Lord, I thought I, I had been intimate with you. You, you used me. I, I'd seen fruit in my life. Uh, you know, you called me to come here and be involved in ministry. I don't get it. Things seem to kind of be falling apart, not, not moving into a better direction. And it's like the Lord showed me this wheat field, like I said, and he and I are standing at the corner where, you know, where the fences meet, and there's just, there's all this, all this fruit, all this wheat just blowing in the wind, and, and it's like the Lord said, this fruit that you've borne is real. It, it, it's not pretend, it's not fake, it's, it's actual fruit. I've grown you up and I've helped you, but what you didn't know was there was this whole hidden area of pain and trauma underneath, and it was like, at the corner of the field was this huge, gaping black hole, like, uh, I visited Carlsbad Caverns once when I was a little guy. And that's this huge cave system. And that's what it reminded me of. And the Lord said, you and I are going to go down into this cave. Don't worry. It's dark. It's scary. You won't like some of the things that we find there. But I'm going to be with you. And we're going to explore that. And I'm going to show you the subterranean world that you haven't been even able to understand until now. Wow. And so that's when I started to look at the effects that trauma had had on me and the ways that I reacted even as a little boy by shutting off my feelings and by, by running to porn and by running to a world of fantasy and books and make-believe and pretend and, because my, my reality was just too painful to deal with. And I was about 26 at that point and I began to, to realize that I needed Jesus to be the true source of love that my core being was, was aching for. I kind of look back on that time as the, the beginning of my transformation. I'd been a believer for, you know, 10 years, and I'd learned a lot, I'd grown a lot, I'd, the Lord had done some great things in my life, I'd led people to Christ, but there was this whole area of pain and woundedness that not only was I kind of in denial about and maybe suppressing, but I really wasn't able to look at it and deal with it. 
the Lord had to strengthen me to a certain level. I think that's why some Christians are, are shocked when they come to Christ, they grow, they learn, and then they reach this crisis or this, this trauma or this place of pain or stress in their lives, and it doesn't seem like the Lord is there for them, and so they jump ship. Hmm. Well, that happened to me, but by God's grace, I said, Lord, I can't, I can't jump ship. I can't go back to the addiction or back to my old way of life. I've got to come to you, but I don't even know how to really do this. This is a, this is a whole new level. I don't even understand where to start. And he said, oh, yeah, I know. I'll show you. This is real relationship, Russell. Nobody knows how to do real relationship. People know how to do sexual relationships. They know how to do some level of friendship. They know how to be social. But most people don't know how to truly be intimate. Um, I'm going to take you by the hand and show you that. Hmm. Russell, two questions here. First one, how did he do that, right, practically? How did he begin to take you through those dark places? And obviously, we know that you had the counselor and, um, well, the therapy with your wife, and that was helping. But what were some other things that God began to do to be able to take you through that? And two, how does this revelation of everything that you have been through and how it was impacting you deeply and God showing you that, how did that affect your marriage? That didn't make all the problems go away because I still kind of held my wife responsible to be my emotional all in all. But slowly I began to realize that that, number one, it wasn't right, it wasn't going to work, that she was a decent wife, but she couldn't be divine. She couldn't meet the needs that only Jesus could meet. The, the thirst that I had was deeper than any woman or any series of women could ever touch. And that's where John 7:37 was so crucial for me. Jesus basically saying, your thirst is abysmal. Your thirst is practically infinite. And you don't take an infinite thirst to a finite person, Russell. You've got to take an infinite need to an infinite source, and that's me. And so I did a lot of reading. Uh, I've, you know, uh, there have been some, since the, the 90s, there have been kind of a, a renaissance of, of Christian thought about counseling and psychology, and, and, and that demonstrated that a lot of what psychology taught was actually consistent with Scripture, you know, in the hands of, of a mature and skilled Christian. And I was reading some of those things. It was making sense to me, and the Lord was guiding me. That was huge. Just spending time, again, with him, as I had always done, but now going deeper. And one thing that I had to do was my, my counselor said, Russell, we really need to kind of go over your history in depth. I want you to journal everything you can remember from the from, you know, time you were born all the way up through. And uh, I didn't really want to write it all out, but... Uh, this will date me when I say this, but I got my cassette recorder <laughs> and I put a tape in and I pressed record and I just started talking about what I recall from my early childhood all the way up through. And while I was just sharing, you know, these, these old stories that I thought, you know, I'd forgotten long ago, I was stunned by how the emotion would rise up inside of me. I thought, wow, that, that happened 20 years ago. Why do I still feel so much emotion about that? And the Lord was helping me see things. Remember one day I was, I was actually talking about my pornography addiction and, and my sexual pursuit. And I had always believed that my mother was responsible for that. She was the one who kind of was the reason that I was uh, so desperate and, and, and seeking those things out from a young age. But Jesus spoke to me and said, Russell, the abandonment, the loneliness, the, the devastation that you felt in regards to your mother, that was caused by her. But your sexual addiction was caused by you. In your loneliness, and, and impoverishment. You went to porn. You chose to go there, and your addiction grew out of that. Your addiction is not your mom's fault. That's yours. You created this. And this won't be a newsflash to some people, but to me it was like, 
wow. The, the two that I always thought were, were one and the same, the Lord separated them and said, no, the devastation, the abandonment, the, the worthlessness that you felt inside, much of that came from your interaction with your mother. But the sexually compulsive behavior, that was your way of trying to medicate this. And what that did, I mean, I, I felt guilt. I felt some shame, uh, legitimately so, some responsibility. But that also showed me that just as I grew this thing and, and allowed it to, to become a monster, I could start to shrink it. I could starve it to death. I could do something different. I, I could stop looking to women, or in particular my wife, to be my all-in-all. All. I could look more to Jesus. So those are some of the ways that I started to learn. Around that time, started volunteering with this organization, New Creation Ministries, uh, as uh, just someone who would come alongside people who were going through the ministry, and we'd pray with them, and we'd have even times of inner healing prayer. And the, the director at that time invited me to come and help out uh, at their Thursday night prayer time. I started doing that. I was, I was experiencing a lot of restoration in my own life. And then when I was around people who were porn addicts or who'd been sexually abused or who struggled with homosexuality or lesbianism or all kinds of just horrific experiences, when I would talk with them and hear their stories and pray for them, I was amazed how much I understood, how, how much kinship I felt with them. You know, I had people say, Russell, you, you seem to understand my homosexuality. Were, are you sure you weren't gay? I said, no, no, I was, I was never gay, but I know what lonely feels like. I know what hopeless feels like. And that's the thing I, I saw that regardless of, of what these people struggle with, the, the details of it, it came from that same place of devastation and uh, a felt sense of abandonment. We have a saying here in our ministry, same root, different fruit. It was really the same root pain and brokenness and trauma that, that drove all of us in our various directions that came out looking different. We might go down different tracks, but we were struggling with uh, the same loneliness that, I mean, at a pathological level. And so I felt like I was with my people. I felt like uh, I understood sexually broken people. And uh, eventually I had a chance to come on full-time staff. And I've been uh, on full-time with this organization now for about 30 years. And I, I have a heart for broken, trapped, uh, hopeless people because I've been there. And here's the thing, I wanna be really upfront. Though, though the Lord has, has helped heal me and grow me up and, and give me a, a healthy, robust understanding of sexuality, sometimes the old abandonment rises up inside of me. There have even been times uh, over the years as a, as a Christian, as a leader, where it rose to the level of making me want to take my own life. It's really hard to explain. Somebody who hasn't tasted that may not be able to follow this, but people who have been broken and abandoned and, and kicked to the curb or, or hated, they know what it's like to feel so hopeless, like the only seeming relief from this pain, this brick in your chest, is to end your life. I remember once uh, my wife and I had an argument over sex. And uh, I felt really hurt and devastated by it. But what it was, was actually I was reliving all the abandonment that I experienced with my mom. And I left our apartment and I took a walk down the street, not too far from here. And I just said, God, this pain is horrible. So I, I thought Carrie was my last and greatest line of defense, but she's collapsed. I have nothing. I have no one now. All I have is you. Yet I don't feel like you're making me feel better. You're not, you're not waving your magic wand over me. I don't feel relief. In fact, I feel like I'm, I'm tumbling into the abyss. And I was walking down this, this street and I said, Lord, if one of these cars should go off the road and hit me and take me out, I would consider it a gift. And I wasn't being melodramatic. 
I was dead serious. It's like death is preferable to this, this, this horrible heartache that's gripped my, my whole body. I can't. And I'm, as I said, I learned how to not be emotional, how to just freeze my feelings. But I just had hot tears coming down my face. And I was just saying, God, I, I can't. It's similar to what the prophet said in the Old Testament after Elijah had faced the prophets of Baal and then uh, Jezebel had threatened his life and he ran and he sat under a tree and said, God, it is enough. Take my life. That was suicidal ideation. And that's what I was feeling. Thankfully, God didn't answer that prayer. And I've had to revisit that place, that place of, of abject emptiness many, many times. And I used to try to run away from it or try to steer clear of it or go around it. And the Lord would let me do that for, you know, two, three, five years. But I ended up coming back and I had to meet him in that place. When, when I felt like no one had loved me, no one was going to love me, when I tumbled to the bottom of that well, I found Jesus at the bottom of that well. And what that slowly started to do was show me that my emptiness, my loneliness, my sense of extinction was not the deepest thing about me or the most real thing about me. Jesus Christ was. But the only way I could learn that, I think the only way anyone learns that is to go into that darkness. But most of us don't want to do that. And I can see why. I, I drugged my feet for years. I didn't want to, I didn't want to re-experience that. I didn't want to go back there and let Jesus unpack that for me and show me how he was actually present there. But I had to. And the, the good thing about that was not only did did his love and his healing and his affirmation of me start to rebuild me as a person, but it started to take the edge off of this unquenchable yearning that I had for sexual fulfillment, even in marriage. That's actually what has been breaking the back of sex addiction in my life. Not just having accountability or not doing the bad stuff, but it's been Jesus' perfect love that's cast out my fear. But that's taken literally decades. How's your relationship with your wife today? Well, my, uh, my first wife actually went to be with the Lord after 30 years of marriage. She, she died from uh, ovarian cancer. And as you can imagine, that was a challenge. My kids were adults at that time. Mm-hmm. So I mourned her loss. And then about a year later, I met my current wife, Paula. We've been married now about eight years. And as you can imagine, the, the stuff that I dealt with in childhood, adolescence, even early adulthood... Uh, it hasn't all been cleared up nicely with a, a little bow at the end of it. Jesus has healed so many areas of, of, of heartache and pain in me, but I'm not a finished product. I'm not totally healed. If I could compare myself like to this big pit, this big deep pit, I, I, I think I could say with confidence that 75% of that pit has been filled, but not 100%. And even biblically speaking, Paul said, in Romans 8, that we all groan inwardly as we wait for our adoption as sons. I think he's referring to this thing that no matter how advanced we are in, in, in Christ, we still know that, that we're not in the presence of perfect love yet. We're not in heaven yet. All of our tears have not been wiped from our face yet. Right? And so I'm aware of that. And yet when I feel some of the old pain creep back in, I've learned to run to Jesus right there on the spot. Say, Lord, this second woman you've given me is as good of a person as she is. She she can't she can't plumb the depths of this of this abyss inside of me. You've got to touch me right now. And I learned to come to Jesus even when I had just over like lustful thoughts. You know, saw some some woman with uh, without a bra or something, and I just learned to just be gut level honest with Jesus. Say, Lord, part of me wants to just jump down that woman's cleavage, but that's not the answer. Lord, even if I had this 
incredible sexual rendezvous with this stranger. Number one, I'd be destroyed as a person, but secondly, that, that wouldn't meet the need because the need's not just for sex. The need's not for excitement. The need's not for novelty. If I went home and my wife and I jumped in bed, that would be great. But Lord, the need would still persist. It, it's not a need that can be met at a strictly human level. The other thing that really helped me was I learned to really start opening up to other brothers. For years, I thought that my need was uh, a need for opposite-sex love. To my surprise, I found that what my need was for was actually love regardless. And to have other men that I started walking with, who I started to really share my life with and they with me, there was a bonding and a healing that would happen. I, I was experiencing brotherly love like I'd never known. My, my, my actual brother and I, we had a connection, but it was, it was marred by all of the, the weirdness and the pain and the chaos in our lives and we were both you know fighting our own demons respectively and unlike me I, I, I didn't want to be an, an alcoholic or, or follow the path of my family but my brother did and he ended up dying of cirrhosis of the liver at 45 he he went down the very same road he had the very same level of pain that I did but he he for various reasons didn't take it to Jesus he, he took it to drinking and to sex he had many relationships I was able to escape some of that, but I wasn't able to escape the, the loss, the, the shock to my, my system that the abuse had created. But now I've come to see it as something of a springboard that gives me an opportunity to be intimate with Jesus on the spot, right there in the moment, wherever I am. And it keeps me dependent. Uh, I find that healing is not something Jesus has imparted to me. Healing is something I experience and live and walk in to the degree that I am currently consciously in touch with Jesus himself. So that's required that I learn how to pray like Paul said without ceasing. That's the secret for me. It's not, there are people that have a kind of zap theology, if you will. Uh, you know, somebody prays for them and they're delivered and they're totally healed. For me, healing is, is a living dynamic experience that happens as I continue walking with the Lord. And the level of pain that I once knew is largely gone. Uh, the suicidal ideation, the, the depression, the hopelessness. Every now and again, it makes an appearance and I have to deal with it. But I know who to go to now. I know whose I am. I know I can literally say that in all of my life, in all of my relationships, Jesus Christ has become my dearest friend, my closest friend. He knows me. He, he sees things about me that other people don't know. He, he knows things about me I don't even know yet. And yet he's always been so kind and so gentle and so patient, and so so parental, and yet he's invited me into his confidence. He's, he's, there's, a, there's a verse in, I think it's Psalms, where it says that the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. In another translation, it says the Lord confides in those who obey him. I've learned to obey, not because, again, like I said, I'm such a, a godly person, but because I've been such a desperate person. And when I, when I, grabbed hold of that pearl of great price. I was willing to sell everything I had so that I could have it and have real wealth on the inside. And that's still what I want to do. That's what I want to live for. And what I have the joy of, of helping other broken people step into and experience. That's one of the reasons I wrote Breaking Free, because uh, as God started opening up more and more ministry through uh, New Creation Ministries, I would hear people say, well, well, Russell, the things you're sharing with me, the, the things you're telling me about, these are great, but is there a book I could read that would you know, kind of help me understand that better? And I'd say, well, you could read this book, and then you could read that book, and half of this other one over here, and kind of put it, and it just, it's like, I, I found myself thinking, man, I wish, I wish somebody would just kind of take all of this and, and combine it. And 
to my shock, I felt like the Lord said, well, why not you? I thought, well, that sounds crazy. I mean, the extent of my education is a high school diploma. I didn't have training in English or, or, or writing, or I didn't have a liberal arts education or background, but I just started writing stuff down as the Lord was showing it to me, and that became, that became the, the book that's now in its 21st printing. And I tell my story very openly and honestly, and it's, it's helped a lot of people. Well, Russell, I, I thank you personally because you're, we've used uh, your book even in our church to help uh, some of um, my friends and some of the people that go to my church. So Fantastic. Um, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Russell, who is Jesus to you? Well, I can give you the standard answers. He's definitely my Savior. Uh, he is a father to me. He's the one who has disciplined me of, of my rebellious, self-willed ways. But over and above all of that, he really is my dearest friend. He is the one that I can run to. I have no fear that he's going to reject me. I've really learned a theology of the cross that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that it really was. All of my sin, past, present, and future was paid for. And so that frees me to, to never have to be fearful or, or concerned that he's going to judge me or lower the boom on me or, or learn something new about me that disgusts him and makes him want to throw me away. I feel absolutely known and seen and loved and heard by him. All I have to do is just is, is call on his name and just re- remember that he lives with me, that he lives in me. I've learned over many years how to walk with him through good times and bad. He's done many, many miracles. I, I could share easily for hours about all the things he's done in my life since I've come to know him. And for me, the miraculous is almost like a for lack of a better way of describing it, kind of a daily experience for me. We used to have a sign in our hallway here at the ministry that said, we don't believe in miracles, we depend on them. (laughs) And that's been my life. I've got to have Jesus Christ reassuring me of his love for me constantly. I am what you might even call an approval whore. (laughs) I've always, since the time I was this high, been looking for someone to say that I was special or, or wonderful or interesting or that somebody loved me. It was all very narcissistic. But the Lord has helped me understand that there is such a thing as healthy narcissistic needs. People who have children understand this when, when their children are five or six and they say, look, daddy, I drew a picture and it's a bunch of squiggly lines. And, you know, the father doesn't say, you call that art? <laughs> you know? He'd be a cruel man. He'd, but he says, oh, that's, what is this? Well, that's, that's, the, that's Darth Vader. And over there is Luke's. Oh, yeah, well, that's great. So, I mean, what, what's a parent doing at that moment? They're meeting their, health, their child's healthy narcissistic needs. But when that's never been addressed, and that hasn't been addressed in the lives of many, many people, who's there for you then? Strange as it might sound, Jesus has said all of those things to me. He's told me things that I wish my parents would have told me. He's, he's been loving. There's no one as affirming and as even, if I can say it this way, even dangerous in the things he will say to you about his love for you and his concern for you. Uh, I used to say, God, I'm going to get a big head if you keep talking to me this way. And he's reassured me that I'll have plenty of crosses in my life to help balance that out. I don't have to worry about that. But, but he's literally loved me back to wholeness. And there have been times when I felt like, wow, Lord, do you do this for other people too? And of course he does. But uh, Jesus for me is, he's the air I breathe. He's, he's the blood in my veins. He's the, he's the reason that I enjoy getting up every day. He's, he's the one I love to talk about. He's the one I love to talk to. I have a private secret relationship with him that is totally apart from ministry or you know, praying for you know, anointing to teach or preach somewhere. 
where I can just be this needy, lonely, hungry little boy who falls at his feet. And he's always so loving and so comforting and so assuring. And I, 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 I can't say that enough. I, my words are, are so meager in, in describing the, the goodness of God's heart, the, the lavish, wasteful love that he has for us. Russell, for, for people who may find themselves in a position thinking to themselves that, well, therapy, counseling, it's not an option for me. I have Jesus in my life. He's going to do it. You know, we don't need that. And, and you were in that position at some point right. as well. Yeah, that's how I felt. So for those people who are in that place, what is a word of encouragement that you can give for those who are having that struggle? Well, contrary to what some people believe, the whole idea of counseling it's not anti-Christian. It, it's it's not you know a worldly approach to to dealing with your issues. Uh, it's thoroughly biblical. And Scripture says, "In the multitude of counselors there is safety." Constantly in the Book of Proverbs, it talks about the wise man receives reproach or rebuke or exhortation or correction. James five sixteen says that if we confess our sins to each other and pray for each other, we will experience healing. I thought I'd just confess my sins to God. Well, I do for forgiveness. But when I confess my sins to a, another brother or sister that's trustworthy, the fact that they can hear that and still be encouraging and loving toward me, that heals something in the human soul that only another human being can touch. God knew that. I mean, he even said to Adam in the garden, it's not good for you to be alone. What are you talking about? I'm not alone, Lord. I've got you. Well, I didn't create you just for me. I created you for others like you. You need them. And so whether you know you talk with your pastor or you've got a really good friend or a mentor or you actually see a, a Christian therapist, we need people who can go inside. In Proverbs 20, it says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. We don't know what those purposes are, those, those deep waters inside of us. Many times we need somebody else to say, well, could it be that you were dealing with this? Or could it be that you've been thinking this other thing? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. And Christians are so threatened by seeking out counsel. But I'll be honest with you, I think it's mostly because we are stubbornly self-sufficient and independent. We can come up with super spiritual reasons why we don't need to see a counselor. But I, I know that God has worked in my life and in the lives of many people through a, a brother or sister who has the ability to hear and maybe some experience in helping people unpack some things and interpret them more accurately. I don't, I don't see that I would have made it or that my, my first marriage would have survived without that. Russell, any last words for people who are watching your testimony right now? I know that there will be people hearing my story who, who've also tasted the same desperation and hopelessness that I have. You might even be there right now. But I, I'm just going to tell you, you have never lived an unloved moment in your life. You have always been inestimably valued by your Creator. God is not mad at you. Whatever wrath God had against sin, he poured it out on the cross. He took it upon himself. He doesn't want to judge or condemn you. Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, we're told. You might feel shame. You might feel horrible about yourself. You might feel like you're worthless and unlovable. But you've believed lies. You've probably heard things in your own family. You're in a culture that's very judgmental and hateful and spiteful. And you probably have a voice inside your own head that says some of this stuff to you. But that's not Jesus. So know that Jesus loves you, and he wants to reveal that to you. Even if you've known the Lord for decades, open your heart to that, and let him love you to wholeness. 
Russell, for those who are watching your testimony right now on the other side of the screen and uh, are relating to what you're saying, are connecting in any way, could you just pray for them, um, for anybody who's just connecting with your testimony right now? Absolutely. Lord, I want to pray for, for the man, the woman, or the young person who is watching this right now, who may feel hopeless, who may feel desperate, who may feel like nobody gets it, nobody knows the, the depth of darkness that I'm in right now or that I've lived in my whole life. Lord, you do. One of the reasons you went to the cross was not only to die for our sins, but to step into the deepest, most hopeless agony of the human race and to taste it yourself. It felt to you like your father, whom you'd known from all eternity, had abandoned you and had left you for the first time, an experience that you had never known. And you tasted that. Scripture says you tasted death for every man. That doesn't just mean the end of our, our physical existence. It means this abandonment and annihilation that some of us feel. You went to the bottom of that. You drank that cup to the dregs. And it was horrible, absolutely horrible for you. You do know. Where were you, Lord, when we were being abused? Where were you when we were being molested? Where were you when we were being hurt and shamed and rejected? Lord, you were dying on the cross for us. That's where you were. Just pray that you would encourage those who are listening and watching right now that you love them. You love especially them. You didn't come to call the healthy, but to call the sick. You didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Lord, you came specifically for the worst of the worst and the most lost of the lost. And even those who are Christians, who feel maybe a duplicity in their heart to say, well, I've got this, this area of darkness or addiction or this secret shame. If anybody really knew me, well, Lord, you really know them. You really know us. And you look at us, Lord, seeing our sin in the bright light of day, and you say, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Thank you, Lord, for loving us like that. I pray that you'd touch the person who's watching and listening right now and give them the hope that they can have real love, true love, love that doesn't go away when times get hard. And I pray all of this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you. 
radio not just for your ears, but also for your spirit. Jesus in the morning radio. And you're with Barbara.